At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Overflow, From Him, Through Us, For All, as we explore Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Together, we'll focus our attention on the gifts of God and see that we're not meant to keep His blessings to ourselves, but to live as vessels of His abounding grace. If you were to Google search for money managing tips, or maybe you grabbed a Forbes magazine or Money Magazine, you, you wanted to kind of get some pointers on how you could kind of manage your money or increase your wealth or do whatever, you would find a plethora of resources to help you think about how you can manage your money and deal with it better. You'll find all sorts of advice like develop and stick to a budget, make sure you set aside a portion of your income for your savings, create emergency funds, diversify your investments, think about active and passive income, right? There is a plethora of advice that you will find all over to help you in thinking about you managing your money. But one piece of advice that you probably will not find very readily in money managing tips is to give it away. If you do find it in the list that you study for managing tips, it always seems like it's kind of at the bottom. In fact, one well-known kind of Christian money managing, help you deal with debt thing advises you to walk seven baby steps to help you manage your money. And giving is the seventh baby step of seven. It always seems to find its way to the bottom. When we think of wealth management, yeah, maybe we should give, but usually it's not at the top of our priorities. Now flip that, if you decided that you were gonna do a Google search for how you could grow spiritually, and grow in your relationship with God. Again, you would find a plethora of resources giving you all sorts of advice on things you could do. Like Bible, read your Bible, spend some time in prayer, maybe attend church, join a community group, do a devotional. You'd find all sorts of lists, and maybe on that list somewhere you would find giving. But I did a search for that list, and I can tell you it's not on the top of most of the lists of how you can grow spiritually. When it comes to giving in our lives, I kind of like to think that we think of giving kind of like we think about Brussels sprouts. Like we know that they're probably good for us, and we probably should do it, and there's probably some benefits, and maybe occasionally we enjoy some Brussels sprouts. But if you really asked us what's the value should I really prioritize it? We would say, nah, there's probably way more important things that you should think about in your life than giving. Giving can oftentimes in our lives kind of become an afterthought or kind of a, maybe a pull of guilt at times, but often ignored, kind of like we ignore Brussels, Brussels sprouts. Giving's good for us, but it's not vitally important to living the abundant life that God invites us into through Jesus. And yet, in the midst of our text this morning, we hear a very clear call from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth to excel in giving. Now, the word Paul uses here, that word excel, right, 
It's the idea of to do with abundance or excellence, to go above and beyond what is normal in any area of life. And so Paul, as he's encouraging the church in Corinth, seems to think that there's such value to giving that he encourages a whole church community to excel in it, to be abundant in it. Now, why would Paul think it's so important for us to excel in giving? What is it about it that could be of such benefit to our spiritual lives and maybe even our financial lives that he would call for us to excel? And how do we move from a place where giving is an afterthought to actually embracing it with this sort of abundance that Paul calls for? Well, that's what I want to unpack a little bit for us from the text this morning. We're in the second week of a series that we've been calling Overflow, where we're looking at how God encourages us to live lives of generosity. And we've been studying through this passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and last week Pastor Joel uh, did a phenomenal job kicking off our series. And I just want to say I am so thankful. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that message, you should go back and listen to it. I am so thankful for a brother who uh, is so careful Uh, with his words and the text, who speaks with such grace and such just love for you. And I'm sure you're thankful to get a reprieve once in a while from me yelling at you, right? You're like, oh, it's actually nice to hear someone just talk in a nice, quiet tone. No, but in all seriousness, I'm so grateful for the way Joel kind of launched this series last week. But just to kind of remind us a little bit of where we are, right? In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth to encourage them in a number of different ways. And in chapters 8 and 9, he's encouraging them to fulfill a pledge that they had made to give money towards the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was experiencing a severe famine and extreme poverty. And the Corinthians had said, we'll give money towards helping the cause and taking care of the church. And, And yet they hadn't fulfilled the pledge. And so Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to kind of encourage them in this to say, hey, you need to fulfill the pledge that you promised. And in the midst of that, he gives us lots of great thinking about how we should think about how our giving relates to our lives and our spiritual lives. And so Paul gives us this morning, kind of last week, he kind of launches in and reminding us that giving really comes out of the overflow of grace that we experience in our lives. But here, he now gives the clear kind of call. All right, we know this, but now you need to excel in giving. But again, why is it so important? Well, Paul's going to give us three reasons in these three verses for why you and I should excel in giving and why it's so important for our lives. We see the first one come right away in verse 7. He says this, But as you excel in everything, so they're experiencing some excellence in areas, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, what is this act of grace? Well, Paul just actually referenced it in verse 6. This act of grace is the reference of the delivering of their financial resources to bless the church in Jerusalem. He essentially says in verse 6 that Titus is going to carry this act of grace to them, but now he encourages them to fulfill this act of grace. So Paul makes this connection between their giving and grace, and he wants them to see that in excelling in giving, they have an opportunity to display God's grace. That's part of the reason of why giving, and Paul calls for it, is that when we excel in giving, we display God's grace. 
The Corinthians were missing out on the experience and opportunity to display something that they had received. And Paul doesn't come at them chastising them or hammering them. No, he wants to remind them and encourage them to say, you've received incredible grace. This is what we talked about last week. God has poured out and given you so much, and you now have the opportunity to put that on display. And so he doesn't just say excel in giving. No, he wants to highlight that connection between grace and giving as he says, excel in this act of grace also. And he roots it in what they're already experiencing excellence in. In fact, Paul lists kind of two triads of things that they were already excelling in in their spiritual life as a church. The first triad reminds them that they were experiencing God's grace in amazing ways through spiritual gifts. You see those first three words in Paul's list, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, correspond to Paul's first letter that he wrote to them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul unveils how this church is experiencing an incredible outpouring of the gifts of the Spirit, gifts of faith and knowledge and speech. And Paul wants to remind them now in his second letter, don't forget you've experienced an incredible outpouring of the grace of God. Spiritual gifts are the way, are a way the grace of God is experienced amongst a community in the church. In fact, the very word that Paul uses for spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 is rooted in the word grace. And so how he's encouraging them to display God's grace, he's also reminding them of the grace that they receive. You will be hard-pressed to find a church in the New Testament who experienced the abundance of spiritual grace that the Corinthians church experienced. Granted, it got a little crazy at times, so Paul had to sort that out. And if you read through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you'll see that. But regardless, Paul's reminding them, you've experienced an incredible act of God's grace. And not only have you experienced in a spiritual gift, you've actually experienced God's grace in the things that are motivating you to even make the pledge that you did. That's why Paul moves to a second triad. He says, you've experienced it in faith, in speech, in knowledge. And then he says, in all earnestness and in our love for you. Paul highlights that they had a zeal, a desire to help other churches. An earnestness that he wants to see fulfilled. That their hearts had grown to love and care for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And Paul reminds them that even in that, it's a love that he first brought to them and that they're now bringing to you. That little phrase he says, and in our love for you, it's a little tricky phrase in the original language, but essentially it's pointing to the fact that Paul showed them love and that they're now experiencing that love, not only in him, but how they're loving others. So they've experienced a passion and a zeal and a love to care for their brothers and sisters, but Paul leaves this little triad unfinished because Paul's encouraging them to complete it. For Paul... Having the heart that experiences grace means it should overflow in action that puts that grace on display. When we have an experience of God's grace that does not result in action, then it fails to display what has been experienced. God's grace is always meant to be moved from an inward transformation to outward action and transformation in every area of our life. And what Paul's trying to encourage in this little sentence is to say, you've experienced God's grace in great ways, but you failed to connect that to your action, to actually put that into action. And so, 
display God's grace by excelling in giving. I, I feel like the Corinthian church kind of has a little bit of the experience that I have sometimes with, uh, with my kids. So um, my kids love to tell me that they know things. This is like, if you're a parent, you know this, right? And so, uh, you know, as part of the natural parent thing, you kind of have to remind your kids from time to time of certain things that they need to do. And so regularly the conversation happens in my household where I'm like, hey, don't forget your COVID form for school, or they wake up on Saturday, don't forget that you can't have screen time until you clean your room, or don't forget to brush your teeth before bed. And I inevitably get this response from my children all the time. They're like, I know, Dad. Like, I know. I know. I got it. I know. And it always sort of kind of like irks me a little bit. I have to like bite my tongue because there's part of me that wants to be like, if you knew, then you do it. So do it. And I feel like that's a little bit, like Paul's not quite as angry as I probably am in my own heart in that moment, but it's like he's kind of encouragement to the church. Like, if you know God's grace, then show it. Why aren't you translating it into action? If grace informs and transforms our inward reality in every area of our life, should it not work itself out in action, especially in including our wallet and our money? Many of us have experienced the amazingness of God's grace. If we took time today, we could go around this room and hear how God's grace has done incredible things in your life. Some of you have been set free from addiction. Some of you have had freedom from sin that you felt entrapped with. Some of you have had whole changes in your attitude because of God's grace. Some of you have overcome bitterness and seen relationships reconciled. God's grace is amazing. But what happens is if we're not careful, we can experience God's grace, but then only contain it in a part of our lives, the parts we're most comfortable with. And what Paul's saying is if you really experience God's grace, it should transform you in such a way that it leads to action in all parts of your life. They were excelling in so much of their spiritual lives as a church, and yet they were missing the opportunity to display God's grace in this avenue by giving generously in action as a church. Inward transformation must always overflow into outward action. That's when we get to display the grace that we have received. And when we live a life of generosity, when we prioritize people over possessions and are willing to give our money and resources away, then we put into action the grace we've experienced. And in doing so, display to the world, we've received so much from our God. Can I show you the grace that he has shown me? But there's a second reason Paul wants to encourage us to excel in giving that he moves to in verse 8. Look at it with me. He says, I say this not as a command. So again, Paul comes with a gentle tone here. He's not the drill sergeant hammering away at you, just trying to get to like, you've got to obey, do it. Which is how much I think we so often interpret calls to giving in the church. No, Paul's trying to encourage and remind them of the opportunity that giving presents. And so he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You see, excelling in giving not only displays God's grace, it also displays genuine love. Paul says the reason you excel in giving is because it's the way you demonstrate the zeal, the love that you have. 
He's already highlighted that they've grown. They've experienced inwardly as a church a passion and a zeal. They showed that by making the pledge. But now Paul's saying, show that zeal and love is genuine by putting into action and giving and actually putting your money where your mouth is in many ways. Paul never questions their love. What he questions is whether that love is genuine and whether that love is made visible by their action. And that's why he uses it and says in this phrase, but to prove by the earnestness of others. What Paul's referencing there is the Macedonian church, which he highlighted earlier in the text, that they had such a zeal to give and care for their brothers and sisters that they gave and proved their love. And so Paul's saying, now you have the opportunity to prove your love by following through on your commitment and giving. True love never leaves us content to just talk. It has to be expressed in acts of concern. That's what one commentator said on this verse. Right? We know that genuine love cannot just be expressed in desire, but has to move to action. You know, part of my job as a pastor, one of the joys that I get as a pastor from time to time is the opportunity to sit with married couples and encourage them in their marriage. And over the years, I've had a number of people who come into my office and look for advice or counsel or help with just working through different things. And through some of those counseling moments, right, I I realized that part of marriage is learning the reality of expressing love in action. Like, imagine this scenario for me, and I've had this experience in probably a number of different ways, but imagine with me a married couple comes into my office, and they sit down, and they're just kind of struggling in their relationship, and, you know, I start to kind of unpack what's going on, what are you feeling, what's, what's happening, and you know, at some point, the wife just expressed to me, like, I just feel completely and totally unloved right now. Like, I just don't feel like my husband loves me. And I'm like, okay, that sounds horrible. I'm sorry. And I kind of turn to the husband. And I say, hey, do you love your wife? Like, do you, do you actually love her? And he's like, yeah, I love her. She's, she's my favorite person on the planet. I love her more than anything else. I cherish her and value her, and I care about her so much. I'm like, oh, okay, well, tell me, how does that kind of play out in in your life? What does that look like? And what I find out is that most days when this guy comes home from work, he eats dinner and then goes and sits in front of the TV and just kind of tunes out. He never really talks much to his wife about what he's feeling or thinking or expresses much love. You know, most weekends he spends golfing with his buddies and is kind of out of the house. And, you know, they haven't been on a date probably in four years. Like at some point in my head, I'm like, "Do, do you actually love her? And what, what do you think my advice to that husband is in that moment? Right? It's to be like, well, you probably should show her that you actually love her if you love her. Right? It's fine to sit here and express desire and say, yeah, I care about her, I love my wife. But if that never translates into action, how does she know that that love is genuine? We know intuitively that love without action does not equal love. It just equals expressed desire. Genuine love results in action. Like the old DC talk song, love is a verb. It must be put into action. And that's what Paul reminds the Corinthians. It's fine to express your love for the Jerusalem church, but until it fulfills itself in action, it isn't genuine. So you have the opportunity. And what it reminds us in the midst of that is that what we do with our money actually shows what we value and love. 
Jesus reminded of this, right? In one of, I think, the most harrowing passages on finance that all of us have to wrestle with at some point. In Luke 11.34, or, yeah, 11.34, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus makes a connection between our love and our money. Because money displays what we actually value. It gives action to what we actually say that we love. You've heard it said before, and it's true. If you want to see someone's priorities in their life, look at two things, their calendar and their bank account statement. And you will show what they actually value and love because it's what they put their action to with their time and their resources. What we do with money reveals what we truly love in our hearts. Notice Jesus doesn't say in that verse, where your heart is, your treasure will be. It's not what you express your desire to be. It's what you do that shows where your heart actually is. You see, many people express a desire to be generous. Many people express a desire to care for the poor, to fight injustice, to lift up the lowly, to reach out to the marginalized, to show generosity. We are like supreme at virtue signaling on social media, our like generosity and care for others. But if you actually got down deep into the way we spend our money, would it actually show those priorities as a society? Would your life show that you genuinely love with action because part of the way we spend our money matters towards our hearts. It just does. And I'm reminded of this every month. You know, part of uh, my wife and I try to commit to be as generous as we can. We're certainly not perfect in that area, but we set aside a portion of our income every single month to be given away. Part of that money goes to our church here because we value God's family. And luckily, I graciously receive a salary, but seek to give back, too. But we also give to support a couple missionary families that we know that are serving in unreached peoples around the world, and we also help to support a nonprofit that we love back in our hometown. And each week when those statements are withdrawn from my bank account, I'm reminded of the connection between where my money goes and where my heart is. Because every month it gives me an opportunity to think about and pray for the things I care about. I don't just give money and then ignore it. No, you know that. If you give money to something, you value it. It gives me the opportunity to pray for our church, to think about and care for my brothers and sisters that are struggling and serving in tough parts of the world. It reminds me of the kids that are at risk in Akron that so many of my friends have given their lives to serving, and it lets me pray for them. Where you put your money orders your heart. It shows the genuineness of your love. And listen, I don't tout that up here to say like, oh, look at me, I'm so perfect. No, we're all in the midst of struggling. But what I'm saying is I continue to learn the lesson that what you do with your money matters to your heart. And what Paul wants to remind you is if we're going to excel in giving, when you do that, it actually displays what you love. And you have an opportunity to show the world what you love by what you do with your money. But Paul doesn't just want to motivate us by guilt or compulsion in his call to giving here. Right? Giving out of guilt does not produce kingdom fruit and genuine transformation. I don't want you to hear in our call today like, well, I just want to make you feel guilty so you give money to the church. No, no, no. That's a terrible motivation and reason to give. 
What I want you to hear is the opportunity that God is presenting to you when you excel in giving. And because of that, Paul in his last verse, I think, gives us such a key to the call that he gives us. Because he roots the call to giving in a much greater reality, really the ultimate reality. You can see it right away in verse 9. Paul says, for you know. So that little word for is a key indicator, right? He's giving you his reasoning now for why he's calling us into this practice of excelling and giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul introduces to the Corinthians here is not a brand new idea, but a reminder of a truth they already knew. The grace of Jesus. And they know this grace, not just cognitively in their heads, they know it experientially. When Paul talks about knowing here, he's referencing that they have put their faith in the gospel. That this church had trusted in the saving work of the Messiah Jesus. That by his death they could be saved from their sins and by his resurrection begin to experience the eternal life of new creation that will last forever. And that that was an experience of God's grace. And it's that experience of grace in the saving work of Jesus for Paul that should be the ultimate motive for our giving. Because excelling in giving displays the gospel. It shows the reality of what Jesus has done for us by living out with extravagant generosity the way we live in our life. The gospel of Jesus not only transforms us, but it provides us an example to follow. And so Paul, because he wants them to root their giving and the call to excel in giving in the gospel, not in guilt, not in compulsion, in the gospel of Jesus, he highlights one of the key understandings of the gospel to display to them how God did the very thing for them that he's now calling for them to do. Namely, what he says, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul reminds us that in the saving work of Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus embraced poverty to provide for us the riches that we need. When Paul talks about Jesus' poverty here, he's referencing his incarnation and self-sacrifice. It's his, the big $10 word is his condensation, that Jesus left heaven, and came to earth, God himself took on flesh and became a person and then died on behalf of his people. It's one of the most incredible, amazing realities of our faith. Paul would describe it this way in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He would encourage us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of God. But not only that, being found in human form. Like it wasn't bad enough that Jesus became a man, but then he humbles himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you woke up this morning and you clicked on the website for the Free Press or the Detroit News and the headline read, Elon Musk gives up his fortune, you would probably be a little bit startled. Or if you read a headline that said, like, Jeff Bezos is giving up his wealth, 
And then you like read the article a little farther and you realize like they're actually giving up like all their money, all their power, all their resources, all their opportunity, and they're like going to move into downtown Detroit and work at a homeless shelter. Like, how do you think most people would respond to that? Like, some might see a little bit of ad- admiration in that. Most of us would be like, you're crazy, that's the way you, the best, like, can't you start a foundation or like do something with all you have? Like, why do you feel like you need to give it up? But regardless, if that was the headline this morning, you would be shocked. I guarantee in your company this week, that's all that you would talk about. Can you believe that Elon Musk giving up all his money? Yet, the condensation and incarnation of God is infinitely more shocking than that headline. To think for a moment that the uncreated one put on the form of creation— That the eternal son submitted himself to the temporary limitations of humanity. That he exchanged the glories of heaven for the trials of earth. That the one who should be eternally served would come and serve all of us. And that the author of life would receive the punishment of death should shock us to our core and ask at some point, why? Why would Jesus do that? Well, Paul gives us the answer, so that we could become rich. How incredible is that? That God himself in Jesus would give up the glories of heaven so that you could receive eternal blessing. Not material wealth. God isn't trying to just raise your bank account and get you a better car. No, he has way better stuff for you than that. In fact, in this passage, one scholar points out that there are over eight things already in this letter that Paul points to. She says, no fewer than eight riches have been mentioned thus far in the letter. The down payment of the Spirit, daily renewal, an eternal weight of glory, an eternal house in heaven, unending fellowship with Christ, new creation, reconciliation, and righteousness are yours in Christ because he took on poverty. The truth of the gospel is that there was a great exchange that happened. Paul actually highlights this just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you received the eternal blessing of the Son and he received your death. That's an amazing truth. That's what motivates generosity. That's what motivates giving. It's only when you recognize how much God gave up to save you that it will motivate your heart to give up your stuff to help others. The gospel is our core motivation for giving because when we give up some of our wealth to help those who do not have it, we put on display a God who would give up his wealth so that we could experience his blessing. You have to get to that point in your heart. If you just get out of guilt, if you just give out of compulsion, you're missing it. You're missing the opportunity. You're missing the opportunity to put Jesus on display as the great Savior and Lord that he is. And it's why Paul tells us you should excel in giving. When it comes to your financial and spiritual lives, giving needs to be at the top of the list because the heart of the gospel is a God who gives. And he is most displayed and experienced when we live lives of generosity and giving as well. 
There's an old movie in 1987 called Wall Street. Maybe you've seen it or not. But Michael Douglas, it's well known, Michael Douglas plays a, a slick Wall Street broker named Gordon Gecko. And in the movie, there's a famous quote that's kind of lingered from the movie over society. Some of you have seen the movie who haven't. If you haven't, you can go look this up on YouTube. But there's a moment where he's addressing a whole group of stockbrokers. And Gordon Gecko looks at him, and this is what he says. He said, greed, for the lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And you will find a thousand resources that encourage you in some way when it comes to your money to pursue that. They might not put it in those words, the thing I love about that quote is the clarity that he drives at it. But if we're honest with ourselves, greed isn't good. Greed's what leads the world to be marked by disunity and equity and strife. It causes wars within our hearts that we're never content with what we have. And we always feel like we have more and to pursue more and that we can't. No. No. Giving, giving is what marks the upward surge of mankind because it's in giving that God gave himself. Giving is what leads to the uplifting of others. Giving puts Jesus on display. Giving provides for those in need. It shows love to neighbor. In a world that's marked by greed, giving comes along and it flips the script and it says there's a better kingdom. There's a kingdom where there's equity for all. There's a kingdom where humans can flourish. And it's not by being greedy with what we have, it's by being generous. That's why we're called to excel in giving. So what does this look like? What does it look like to excel in giving? And I'll just close with this. Go back to that word, excel. To abound to keep doing it, to get better at it. You see, the reality is we all come this morning at different points in our lives when it comes to our giving. And I think what the text invites us to is to follow the lead of our Savior by just taking a step forward in our own giving, to pursue the call of the text, to excel in this act of grace as well. Maybe for some of you, it's giving for the first time and just finding the freedom of letting go of your resources and realizing that your security doesn't have to be in what you have and what your bank account number is. Maybe for some of you, it's taking the step, you give occasionally, but maybe it's taking the step of beginning to regularly give so that you order your heart and your life with God's priorities, not your priorities. Maybe God's asking you to expand your giving or take a step of faith this morning. Maybe God's laying on your heart a person or a family that he's calling you to bless. Maybe you already live a generous life and God's reminding you of what he's given to you and calling you to continue that commitment in your own life. Whatever it is, what I want to encourage you is follow the example of our Savior and excel in giving. Because it's through giving that we get the opportunity, not the burden, the opportunity to display God's grace, to show genuine love, and to put the gospel front and center in our lives. I don't want money from you. 
I want you to experience the abundant life that God has for you. And I want Jesus to be glorified in this church because all of us do the work of bringing him front and center. That's why we give. It's about him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. We pause just to give you praise this morning for what you have given to us in Christ Jesus. That you, oh God, eternal and perfect, praised in heaven by angels, armies of angels, that Jesus, you would give that up to take on flesh. Not only that, to die on our behalf that we could experience new life is an amazing thing. My heart is so grateful that you would do that for us. God, would you just, in this moment, bring to bear the truth of the gospel on our hearts? Would you rid us of the guilt and shame that so often accompanies these conversations? And would you instead bring us back to the truth and reminder of what you've done for us in Jesus? And from that point, would you encourage us towards giving? God, I pray for anyone this morning who hasn't experienced that exchange, that freedom that comes from knowing Jesus. Would you show and remind them of how much they, you love them and the opportunity that you give them in the death and resurrection of Christ? But God, for those of us that have experienced that, let us live from that core motivation of the gospel. Let it impact all of our lives in every area so that no matter what we do and where we go, we can put you on display. You're the one who's worthy of our worship. You're the one who did what we could never do. And we just want to spend our lives glorifying you. So even now, while we sing this last song, would you move spirit in our hearts and in our lives? to free us from the sin that so easily entangles and to draw our eyes to our great Savior and what he's done for us. We love you and ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.